Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Philip Trock. I'm one of two pastors here at Richfield Bible Church. Next week, Lord willing, Brian will continue on in his series in Paul's letter to the Romans. But this week, we will continue and finish our series in the book of Joshua. And so please open your Bibles to the book of Joshua, starting from the front of your Bible. There's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. If you can remember back this far, our first time in Joshua was June 9th, 2019. That seems like a very long time ago. And today, our 14th and final time in Joshua, we will look at the last two chapters of the book, chapters 23 and 24. As a reminder, as we kind of wrap up the book of Joshua, Joshua can be divided into three major sections. Chapters 1 through 12 tell the story about how God brought Israel into the land and gave it to them through conquest. This is where many of the famous stories from Joshua are found. The stories about Rahab and the Battle of Jericho, about the crossing of the Jordan River, about Achan's sin and Israel's defeat before the city of Ai, about the Gibeonite deception, and about that special day when God bent the sun and the moon to Israel's advantage. Then we come to chapters 13 to 21, which detail the land that God allotted to each of Israel's tribes, including the cities for the tribe of Levi and the cities of refuge. For hundreds of years, Israel has heard about these promises from God about a land. And finally, in these geographical descriptions of these chapters, these promises finally become reality. Promise becomes dirt and water as stone and fields and trees and cities and vineyards. And now chapters 22 through 24 raise another important question. Will Israel be faithful to Yahweh and therefore be able to remain in the land, the place of God's promised blessing? As you read chapters 1 through 21, there's no doubt that God is faithful to Israel. That is clear. And now these last few chapters turn and ask Israel, will they be faithful to Yahweh and so remain in the land? So let's begin and get an idea of what's in these last two chapters by looking at Joshua 23, starting in verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the east. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Verse 6. Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. So as Joshua 23 begins, we find that a very long time has passed. So long, in fact, that Joshua has grown very, very old. 
Israel is now at rest in the land, and yet, as you noticed in what we read, this does not mean them being at rest. It does not mean that there are no enemies left to remove from the land that God has allotted to his people. There are still more peoples in the land that need to be conquered. If you remember, the book of Joshua began with the death of Moses and the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. And now as the book of Joshua ends or concludes, Joshua's time as leader is also coming to conclusion. But there's still lots more work to do. There's still peoples in the land that God has assigned to Israel's tribes that need to be removed out of that land. And so Joshua assures Israel that God is ready to keep fighting for them. No one can stand against Israel when God fights for them. And we saw that clearly played out in chapters 1 through 21. God's help for Israel will not die with Joshua. God is ready to continue. But what about Israel? Are they ready? Will they be faithful to God so that they can keep enjoying his blessing and stay in this special land? Then, of course, Joshua 23, if you read the rest of it, ends without any kind of a response from Israel. Now, chapter 24 is is very similar to chapter 23. Again, Joshua assembles the people, but this time he reminds them of much more than just the conquest. So in chapter 23, Joshua looked back really at just the time period of the conquest. But in this chapter, chapter 24, Joshua takes them all the way back to Abraham's father. And then he recounts very quickly their people's history over the centuries. And you don't have to read long before you start to realize Joshua's purpose in this historical recounting. It is to remind Israel of the many significant and critical ways that the Lord has acted on Israel's behalf. It's so clear, in fact, that when you come to the end of this this short history, it's easy to see that Israel would not be here in this position if it was not for God. It's obvious. So let's start reading in verse 2. Reading in verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor. And they served other gods. They were idolaters. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt." And you lived in the wilderness a long time. That's a very kind way to describe what happened at the wilderness. And you lived in the wilderness a very long time. Moving on. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. Verse 12. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. 
the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell on them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. And with verse 13, Joshua concludes his historical summary and calls Israel to respond. So how do you respond when you're reminded that everything about your place in life is because of someone else's favor toward you? Seems like a very obvious question of what you should do, but as easy as this question is, Joshua does not let Israel answer it for themselves. He calls them to be faithful to the Lord, and this time Israel's response is recorded. They actually agree with Joshua. They promise that they will be faithful to the Lord and continue as his covenant people. And then not long after, in verses 31 and following, Joshua dies at a ripe old age of 100 and 10. Now, I want to take a closer look at these two chapters with you. First, because of what God is revealing to us about himself in these chapters, but then also because the same God that called Israel to faithfulness has also called us. And we will be helped in our response to God's call when we consider his call to Israel. And so, first of all, as we look more closely at God's call for Israel to faithfulness, we're going to see number one, And God's call to faithfulness is a call to faith-inspiring gratitude. God's call to faithfulness is a call to faith-inspiring gratitude. In both chapters, Joshua begins by rehearsing what God has already done for Israel, by rehearsing God's grace toward Israel. We can see this in Joshua 23.10 a verse we didn't read before, when Joshua says, one man of you puts to flight a thousand. Can you imagine knowing that in your army, every man you have could fight off a thousand? Okay, that's not natural. That is God empowering Israel. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised. And then even even more convincing of all that God has done for Israel is when Joshua recounts that long history of how God blessed Abraham's line with many children, how God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, and later from cursing of Balak and Balaam, how God fought for them on the east and the west side of the Jordan River, and how God provided for them cities they did not build and vineyards they did not plant. And of course, perhaps you can even think, as you think back over Genesis to Joshua, you can think that this isn't even everything. Like there are more things Joshua could have listed out that God did for the people. We can all think of other stories, even ones in the book of Joshua that he could have included. And so again, this is not everything that God has done for Israel, but it does show that God has done everything for Israel. The people would not be enjoying God's promised blessing if it were not for God. And these descriptions of God's grace are intended to to work upon Israel's heart. Joshua wants the faith of God's people for the future to be inspired by gratitude for God's grace in the past. Thankfulness for God's grace in the past inspires faith that God will provide the grace we need in the future. And what Joshua did here looks a lot like what the Apostle Paul did in his letter to the Romans. And I tread nervously on Romans since this passage is coming in the coming couple weeks. 
But Romans 12, 1 and 2 famously begins, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Paul bases this appeal to present their bodies on the mercies of God or the grace of God in salvation, which he has just spent all this time describing. We would not be enjoying the blessings of God's great salvation if it were not for God. He has done everything for us in Christ. And Paul intends, like Joshua, that the rehearsal of God's grace, his great grace, would inspire gratitude in our hearts and that this gratitude would inspire faith or confidence that God will give us the grace we need today and tomorrow to be faithful to him. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you don't feel this way. You don't feel confident in God's grace for today or tomorrow. This, this is common. Okay? I shouldn't say if you feel this way. It's more like when you feel this way. Okay? When one of my children was just learning to read, they were easily frustrated and they would read only as much as they absolutely had to. They hadn't experienced yet the pleasure of reading. And so what was the solution? Did we, did we just tell them how good reading was and it just like, okay, now I love it? No, the solution was to keep making them read. And now this same child reads every night with a special neck light. And sometimes if they're in the middle of a really good book, I'll find them at random places throughout the house reading just because they want to. So what about when we don't feel grateful to God? Obviously, this is the problem, but this is a problem. But the solution, when you don't feel thankful for God's grace, the solution is to thank God for his grace. As one author wrote, the very practice of giving thanks directs our soul's attention away from what burdens us toward the great source of unearned, undeserved, powerful, abounding, and sustaining grace. Thank God that you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy. Thank God that the Spirit intercedes for you according to the will of God. Thank Him for all that He has done for you in saving you. Nurture thankfulness for God's grace by being thankful. And that thankfulness for God's grace will grow. And with it, the faith or the confidence that God will provide the grace that you need for today and tomorrow. We ought to feel faith-inspiring gratitude for God's grace toward us through Christ Jesus. So number one, God's call to faithfulness is a call to faith-inspiring gratitude. But second, God's call to faithfulness is a call to a special relationship with him. God's call to faithfulness is a call to a special relationship with him. With him. I mean, look at how Joshua describes what Israel should do. First of all, in Joshua 23, verse 6, Joshua says, Therefore, be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Then in verse 8, Joshua says, But you shall cling to the Lord. Then in verse 11, Joshua says, Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord. And finally, In chapter 24, verse 14, Joshua says, Fear the Lord and serve him. So what is Joshua calling Israel to do? The descriptions are are varied throughout these two chapters, but together they give us the full picture that God calls his people to obey, love, 
fear, cling to, and serve him. But before we move along, because we have kind of, we've heard all those commands before so many times, I want us to consider just momentarily what these commands say about God. Maybe you're here today and you don't know much about the God of the Bible. Well, let me tell you that these commands do not reflect a God who wants to keep his distance from the people and wants them to stay away. These commands do not reflect a God who is out to get his people and just watching for them to mess up. And at that moment, he gets to judge them. These commands do not reflect a God who is interested only in what he can get out of his people. Neither do these commands reflect a God who gives to the people whatever they want. This is not Israel's God, and this is not our God. Our relationship to him is not like the one you have with the president, with your boss at work, or even with your nice old grandfather. No, this God desires a relationship with his people characterized by obedience, love, loyalty, awe, and service. And so when God calls us to faithfulness, he's calling us to a special relationship with him as the people he created. Number three, God's call to faithfulness is a call to forsake idolatry. Now we see this first in Joshua 23. When Joshua calls Israel to keep the law, verse 7, Joshua 23, verse 7. He calls them to keep the law that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. You see, throughout, throughout Israel's history, intermarriage with unbelieving nations is a regular path to idolatry. And unfortunately, we find out later in chapter 24, 14, that idolatry is actually already a problem in Israel. Because Joshua says to them, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And that's when we come to perhaps the most famous verse in Joshua, Joshua 24, 15, where Joshua says to Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. Maybe the most famous verse in the book. Certainly the most framed verse from the book. Now the way that this verse is is usually thrown around or the way that you see it framed on a wall, you would think that the choice was between the Lord and idols. But that's actually not what Joshua says. Okay, look again at verse 15. He says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. What are the two options? Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So is Joshua saying that if Israel has decided it's evil to serve the Lord, if they're they're not going to serve the Lord, then okay, are are you going to serve the gods on the west side of the river? Are you going to serve the gods on the east side of the river? That's what he's saying. If you've already kind of eliminated God as an option, it's evil to serve him, you've got to pick. Are you going to choose the gods over here? You're going to choose the gods over here. Now, does does Joshua want Israel to serve these other gods? Absolutely not. Joshua wants Israel to serve the Lord. And so Joshua is, I, I believe, using some kind of sarcasm here with them 
with this choice between Western and Eastern gods, perhaps trying to impress upon the people their ridiculous position. If they turn away from God, now they're in a position where they have to, they have to kind of weigh their options and choose their gods. Okay? Joshua, on the other hand, says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He will serve the God who chose Israel so many years ago. And thankfully, Israel responds well to this word from Joshua. If you look in Joshua 24, verse 16, this is what they say. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And then they go on to kind of rehash some of what Joshua said at the beginning of the chapter, verse 17. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now, that sounds really good. And that was the right answer, actually. But Joshua is not encouraged by this answer. Look in verse 19. Joshua says, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Now, what does Joshua mean by that? Is Joshua, again, trying to discourage Israel from following the Lord? Like, you don't really want to do this. No, that's not his point. He wants Israel to serve the Lord. So is, is Joshua make some, making some kind of like blanket statement that under no circumstances is Israel actually capable of serving God? Is that what he's saying? And the answer is no, because of what verse 31 says. Verse 31 says, Israel did what? They served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So Joshua is not making some kind of blanket statement that Israel cannot, under any circumstances, serve the Lord. So what does Joshua mean? Well, I think he tells us in verse 20. I think he clarifies in verse 20. I think he's saying, if you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. In other words, when Joshua says you cannot serve the Lord, he's saying that it will not work to serve both the Lord and idols. This will not work. Why? Because God is holy. He is unique. He is unlike anything. There is no one like him. And he is a jealous God. And as a holy and a jealous God, it is not okay with him when his people uh, treat something less than him like it is greater than him. He will not stand for that. And so Israel, you cannot serve both both God and idols. Consider... Men, that your wife, I hope, encourages you to invest in many good friendships. But your wife will not accept the idea of even one more person having with you the kind of relationship that she has with you. It is just not okay. In fact, the exclusivity of the marriage relationship is such a good illustration of this that God talks about himself throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophets, as a husband to Israel, and he talks about Israel as his adulterous wife, who is regularly unfaithful to him. He's a jealous and holy husband, and he will not stand for it. It is not okay with him when something less than him is treated 
as if it is better than him. You cannot serve both God and idols. And so God's call to faithfulness is a call to forsake idolatry. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think about idolatry very much. In fact, I think usually when I'm thinking about idolatry, it's because I'm reading the Old Testament. that's, That's where it normally comes up. Most of us have probably never bowed in worship before a statue of a false god. In fact, the, like, like, like me, it's, it's really through our Bibles and, and maybe through some friends that you have, some neighbors, maybe from another country or something, that you're exposed to idolatry on any consistent basis. But in fact, the Bible does not limit idolatry only to such false worship. Okay, it's kind of limited in our minds to that, but that's not how the Bible limits idolatry. In Colossians 3, Paul says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry is not a statue. Idolatry is not the the bowed position of our bodies. Idolatry is a desire in your heart. It is a desire It is to want something more than you want God. And whatever that is, whenever you do that to whatever that is, that thing becomes an idol. And the truth is that we do this a lot. Okay, We do this a lot. We want others' approval so badly that we find more joy and affirmation in knowing that others are impressed with what we have done than we do in knowing that God sees all of our work and that he will reward us. That is idolatry. We want to be right so badly that we cannot apologize to our brother or sister without pointing to where we were actually right. We'd rather be right than see God restore that relationship. That is idolatry. We want sexual fulfillment so badly that we turn to pornography or we critique our spouse rather than turning to the solid joys and lasting pleasures given to us through Christ. That is idolatry. We want to be secure so badly that we take a new, better-paying job when we know it will limit us only to the church's Sunday morning worship gatherings. We'd rather have a larger nest egg than know and be known to serve and to be served in the church. That is idolatry. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The truth is, we are idolaters. As John Calvin famously said, our nature is a perpetual factory of idols. The mind begets an idol, and the hand gives it birth. But we cannot serve both God and idols, and so we need God to help us. We need him to keep exposing the idols of our hearts, and we need him to to show us how much better he is, and we need him to give us strength to change our hearts so that we are discontent with lesser pleasures and love the joy that God provides. God's call to faithfulness is a call to forsake idolatry. Number four, God's call to faithfulness is a call that must not be ignored. It is not optional. You cannot just take it or leave it. 
We see this throughout chapters 23 and 24 as, as Joshua describes the consequences of not being faithful to the Lord. For instance, in Joshua 23:16, he says, If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. And again, in chapter 24, verse 20, he says, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. You see, faithfulness to God is not just a good option for enjoying God's blessing. It is the only option. There is nowhere else Israel can turn in order to make sure they get to stay in the land and keep enjoying God's blessing as his people. God does not allow rebels to enjoy the blessing that he has prepared for his people. In fact, Joshua warns the people that God is going to be just as faithful to his promises of blessing as he has been. Excuse me, he's going to be just as faithful to his promises of judgment as he has been to his promises of blessing. Chapter 23, verse 14, Joshua says, And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Not one. Every single one has come to pass. God is faithful to his word. Verse 15, But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land the Lord your God has given to you. God does not allow rebels to enjoy the blessing he's prepared for his people. God judges the wicked, and that's good. It glorifies his justice, and it's good for the people who want to live under his rule. It's good for us that our king brings down rebellion in his kingdom. He will not allow rebellion to go on forever. Praise God that he is so patient with sinners, but praise God that there will come a day when he will establish his kingdom in such a way that no one will ever rebel against him again, and that everyone there will want to live under his rule. God's call to faithfulness is a call that must not be ignored. And finally, number five, in case you haven't gathered this already, I want you to see that God's call to faithfulness is a call for you today as well. You see, Joshua's words to Israel on that day were God's call to Israel to be faithful. But this call was and is not just for those Israelites. In fact, God's call to faithfulness predates Israel and it postdates Israel. It continues to today. And one of the best places in the Bible to see this is in Hebrews 3 and 4. The author of Hebrews explains and looks back at this exact time in history, really, some of it, it explains that Israel's Exodus generation, the first generation that came out of Egypt, that generation failed to enter God's rest. That's what God calls it, his rest, what he's prepared for his people. That generation failed to enter God's rest because they didn't believe God's promises. Then, as we know, Joshua led Israel's second generation into the promised land. But this land is not the rest that God promises to his people. How do we know that? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us this. He answers that question by pointing us to a psalm, Psalm 95. And in this psalm, God's, God is warning Israel not to miss out on his rest through unbelief. He says, don't miss out on the rest I prepared 
by failing to believe in my promises, like the Exodus generation did. Now, why does that prove that the promised land is not the rest that God promised? Because the people that are warned in that psalm are living in the promised land. Like, they're there. They're in that piece of land. And God says, you need to believe or you're going to miss out on my rest. And so the author of Hebrews points out that if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, like he did in Psalm 95, saying that there was a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the land where, the land where Joshua was standing when he gave these words was not the rest that God promised to his people. By faith, also in Hebrews, we learn that God's people desire a better country, and that is a heavenly one, Hebrews eleven sixteen, And so the promise of God's rest still stands for us today. And so like Joshua, as we just saw in Hebrews, Jesus extends the call to faithfulness to each of us today, saying in Hebrews 4.11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And the good news is that while Jesus is like Joshua, he is not just like Joshua. He's far, far better than Joshua. Because while Joshua could only call the people to faithfulness, Jesus was faithful when no one else could be. You see, Israel did not continue to live as God's faithful covenant partner. The people turned away from God to idols, and the Lord was faithful to his promise to take them out of the land, his place of special blessing. And so God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live on this earth always in faithful obedience to his Father. And then Jesus died on the cross, the ultimate sacrifice for sin, and took our place under the wrath of God, the righteous for the unrighteous. But then he was raised from the dead. He was victorious over sin and death. And in his resurrection, his sacrifice for sin was was validated. And so when we hear God's call to faithfulness from Joshua this morning, our first response should not be, yes, I need to be more faithful. That's a good sentiment, but that's not the first one. When we hear the call to faithfulness from Joshua 23 and 24 this morning, our first response should be to pray these words. Thank you, Jesus, that you were faithful because I could never be faithful enough. And thank you, Jesus, that because I'm trusting in you alone, your faithfulness counts for me so that I get to enjoy God's promised blessing. You've been so gracious to me already, and so I am confident that you will continue to give me the grace I need today and tomorrow to keep walking faithfully with you. So maybe you're here this morning, and you know that your life is not about faithfulness to Christ. You're not trying to follow Jesus, and that's clear. And perhaps you've never heard about what what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, how he lived for you, how he died for you, and how he was raised for you. And if you respond with faith to him, if you, if you believe, if you believe that Jesus is your only hope for rescue from your sin and its punishment, then God will forgive your idolatry because of what Jesus did. And God will welcome you into his people, into that special relationship that he desires with his covenant people. 
And for the rest of us who have, who have already responded to this call to faithfulness and trusted in Jesus, perhaps you're discouraged today in how you perceive your faithfulness to God. If that's because of sin or apathy, I would encourage you to remember that you are accepted with God because of Jesus' faithfulness, not yours. And then turn away from your idolatry. Run to Jesus and he will, he will forgive you today, right now. As soon as you ask him, he will forgive you. Don't keep trying to live for God and for idols. Jesus is a holy, jealous God and he will not stand for it. Or if you are discouraged in your service to the Lord, your faithfulness to God because of trials perhaps, perhaps relief hasn't come as quickly as you expected and you are wondering, how long is this going to go on? My challenge to you today is don't make an idol out of relief. There was a man in our church in Wisconsin, Michigan, who was going through something and he asked this question in a small group that he had asked himself. He said, I had asked myself this week, what if relief from this never comes? What if it never comes until Jesus comes? And some of you are already there. There are things about your life that you have accepted as this is the new norm because it's gone on for so long. To those of you, I would say this, this trial is your opportunity to glorify God in the midst of suffering by testifying through your joy in Christ that you want him more than you want relief from this trial. It's okay to keep praying for relief. God loves to hear the cries of his people. But this is our chance to testify of our love and joy in Christ by showing that we want him more than relief. This is, this is really hard to do. And so we have to run to Jesus who stands ready with all of the mercy and grace that such a life requires. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for Joshua 23 and 24, for, for all of the book of Joshua. Thank you for the consistent display throughout chapters 1 through 21 of how you are, you are for your people. And that with a God like you for us, there is nothing, there is nothing that can stand against your will for us. Father, we, as we hear your word today, as your people, we, we want to be faithful. We want to, to serve you well. And so we are so thankful this morning that, that Jesus was faithful because we are not. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. And thank you for promising us the help, the grace that we need to glorify you with our lives. Thank you that you forgive us when we are unfaithful. 
and that we are still accepted in those days because of what Christ did. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.